0: Amen. Thank you, Josh. All right. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Awesome. I want to welcome you again on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, as we begin a new sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, as we track through the book of Matthew and look at the different parts of the Sermon on the Mount here. And um, and it's going to be a great time. Amen. But as we're uh, in Memorial Day weekend, we're thinking about those uh, military service personnel who have given their lives, maybe perhaps you know some of them, maybe it was a family member for you uh, who is given, as they say, the the greatest sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, and even as we were praying before the service, it was just uh, evident as we think back, every person who does that, right, is really showing us a picture of Jesus, aren't they? Because those folks who have served in our military, who, who gave their lives For what? To purchase our freedom. They were really showing us a picture of Christ who gave his life to do what? To purchase and secure our freedom. Amen? And so even as as we look uh, on this weekend, it is pointing us back upwards towards Jesus Christ. Uh, But as as Brother Chris was kind of challenging us and reminding us, what about us who are here right now? Right? What, what, what about those of us who are still living? What are we called to do right now? What is our lives supposed to look like today? How, how do we truly honor those who have gone on and, and those who have uh, lived before us, those who have given their lives in, in military service? How do we honor those in the faith who have gone before us and shown us how to live? How do we honor, most importantly, right, Jesus Christ? Today, What about us? What is the calling upon our lives? What is the sacrifice in our lives looking like? And really, this Sermon on the Mount is, is the, the marching orders, if you will. It is the most clear instructions on discipleship. And it really, uh, it, the, the title of today's message is A Call to Die. That was really the calling upon all of our lives as we come to Jesus. He calls us to die to ourselves, right? To die to ourselves and to live for him. To die to ourselves and to live for him. One person who I think did that well was a German man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was actually hung um, by the, the Third Reich, if you will, for conspiracy to take out Hitler. He was a a believer, a pastor. He wrote many things. And I want to share with you a quote from his book, um, The the Cost of Discipleship. And this is what he says. I believe we'll throw it on the the screen there. It says this The cross is laid on every Christian. Think about that for a second. Uh, What is is the cross? Right? It's It's a picture of death, dying to ourselves. The first Christ sovereign, which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we um, embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end. To an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. Watch this now. The cross is not the end. The cross is what? The beginning of our communion. That is right at the beginning. What Jesus calls every believer is to take up your cross and follow me. And then he says this: when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That is the counterintuitive nature of of following Christ, of being a Christian. Come and die. Then it says this may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther. He was speaking of Martin Luther, the reformer, who had to leave the monastery. He had to leave what was comfortable to him and go out into the world for the sake of Christ. But it is the same death every time Death in Jesus Christ, death to the old man at his call. And so, believers, we are called to come and die, but listen to me now, so that we might truly live, so we might truly find life. And this is really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It it is about how do we walk in the new life that Jesus has for us. We sung earlier, right? All glory to our God and King. That song, right? Every knee will bow down. And, and, and that comes directly from the scriptures in Revelation. It talks about every knee will bow. But he's a king. How many know that Jesus Christ is a king? And a king has a kingdom, right? He has a kingdom that he brings with him. He has a kingdom that is engaged and is moving. And a kingdom has a way of operating, right? It has principles upon which a kingdom operates. I know the uh, the United Kingdom and the royals of that family are all in the news today, right, Harry and all those folks and i mean uh, and, and especially these young ladies that they have married, but the royal family has rules, they have etiquette, they have a way in which the kingdom operates. How many of you know all the different rules there? I was looking up some of those this week, but there is a proper way to sit, especially for the ladies and there is like the, the like half-bent, right? You don't cross your legs, but it's like this half-bent type deal. There is a way in which you are to dress, and there are certain occasions require certain colors and certain formal regalia, that sort of stuff. There is a way in which you even walk down the stairs in which your posture is supposed to be this way, Your head is not supposed to come out of alignment from your chest and that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, And there's a way in which they are supposed to operate. There's a way in which they are supposed to hold their utensils. There's a way in which you're supposed to hold your tea. Even a way in which you're supposed to hold your napkin. And then there are, of course, a right way to wear the tiara that is dictated to them by the rules and regulations Of their kingdom. There is a way in which, in an order in which you enter the room as the royal procession everywhere you go and in in different buildings, there is a way in which you operate. There is even uh, the rule for wearing a hat at formal occasions. And of course, the media loves to take those pictures. Uh, They're also, I don't know if you knew this, but this was me, they are not allowed to vote. They are supposed to remain neutral in regards to the politics. And uh, they're also not allowed to give autographs. Uh, And that was kind of interesting. One, uh, because it could result in a higher rate of forgery, I suppose, uh, with people seeing their signature. And then also because they want to um, uh, show and demonstrate a humility. and, and, uh, And that's important for how they run the kingdom. And then finally, this would be the most difficult one for me, is that when the queen at a meal stops eating, Everyone else must stop eating, no matter where you were in your meal, you had to stop right and uh and so there's a way in which the kingdom operates and I'm glad god's kingdom doesn't have a bunch of crazy, silly rules for us, but in fact this god's rules are for our flourishing god's kingdom, the way in which he operates are for human good, they are for our best and 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 um, oftentimes we would say this, and I heard this. I'm trying to change my language. I want to help you change your language as well. Jesus came, and he, and he lived on the earth, and for three years he had his ministry. Imagine that, just three years of ministry. And in that three years of ministry, him and his disciples and those who would follow him turned the world upside down without any cell phones and technology, without writing a book, without traveling more than you know, a couple hundred miles outside of where he lived. He was able to turn the world upside down. That's bad language, folks. So next time somebody says you're not allowed to say that. That's a four-letter word. Okay? Don't say turn the world upside down. What somebody told me a little while ago was Jesus came to set the world right side up. You see what I'm saying here? It's because there's a design. There's a way in which God made things to operate, a way in which his kingdom operates. And sin came in and destroyed it and messed it up. And all of us are infected with it. And that's why our nation and our world is in the state that it is in. is because sin has come and turned things upside down. And Jesus came and turned it right side up and then gave us the calling as believers, gave us the marching orders of the kingdom to say, this is how you operate in the world, turning it right side up. And it's counterintuitive to what the world typically celebrates. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, even the Beatitudes today, which Josh read for us, they're the opposite of what we would think the world celebrates strength the world celebrates pride and ability and um and whereas Jesus and his kingdom turning the world right side up celebrates humility and meekness and poverty and gentleness peacemaking it's the opposite of what the world as brother chris was talking about each of us is engaged in a battle against the unholy trinity the world our flesh and the devil that comes from the scriptures of the world and the world system, which we all learn from, the flesh, which we still have, the old remnants of the flesh and the enemy. And so as we embark upon this series here of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to give you just one more little parenthesis before we dive into the text. And that is two different words here of moralism versus morality. Those words seem very similar, but there is a difference. And sometimes when people teach on the Sermon on the Mount and navigate these things, we can confuse things and people can get the wrong message. And uh, and I don't know about you, but we don't want to miscommunicate things. And So let's talk about this for a second. I remember when I became a Christian and I came to faith in Christ and I wanted to share Jesus with those around me. And and as soon as I became a Christian, I left this area and, and God took me into the Wilderness of Boiling Springs, North Carolina, where there was one stoplight, and um, and I went to college there, and I was trying to find a church, and I didn't know what kind of church. I was just brand new to the Fed, what kind of church to find, and uh, I tried to go to this church, and I got there an hour after the service. You know, I I was coming in, everybody was going out. You know how it is, and I was like, okay, well, this was great, great job, and um, and then my roommate invited me to his church, and I was like. This bunch of college kids, and uh, man, they were just rocking out. They were like swinging from the chandeliers, was going crazy, and it's like it was rock star. and I was there for a while, um, and then I um, finally got plugged in at another church, and um, and, uh, and then had some experiences. And then I also worked with uh, uh, with like Big Brother Big Sister program. You guys know what that is, mentoring kids. I started working with that and with some local uh, with a local kid there in uh, Shelby, North Carolina. And uh, And as I did that, I took him to church, and then uh, his mom had had a connection with the church and they had a Wednesday night thing and, and uh, you know, just old school south. And they had a supper and then they broke the kids up in the east. And, and I was trying to get this kid to church. I was trying to get some other college folks to church and I wanted them to meet Jesus. But a lot of times when I took them to church, they didn't meet Jesus. They met somebody else. They met morality. And what they heard was when they go to church, they heard, hey, don't go out and party. Don't go out and have Sex. Don't go out and smoke. And they, and and that's all they heard is don't do this, don't do that. And it was just morality, uh, moralism, moralism. Excuse me, I messed up the word moralism. That's that's what it was. And and what is the difference, Pastor? Because you you messed it up there for a second. So let's 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 backtrack. So moralism is is this focus on external appearance, focus on external rules and And the right behavior will grant me access to god will will we'll get God to approve and love me if I do these steps. that would be moralism. Are you with me? and that is not Jesus. that is not the gospel. and so all those people would hear is "Do this, don't do that and they'd never heard about the cross. they' never heard about Jesus. Being the center, and Jesus is the only one who met all those standards perfectly. And He, when you surrender your life to Him, you repent from your sins and you follow Him. He comes to dwell inside you, and He is able to help you from the inside. Y'all with me? From the inside, He changes you, and that begins to reflect outward. And so, moralism is that moralism says, in order for you to be loved by God, in order for you to be accepted by God. There are these steps or these behaviors you must conform to first. Otherwise, God won't love and accept you. And that is dead wrong and the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you cannot. You have tried and you are found bankrupt. You are found in lack. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you come to Jesus, he has fulfilled the standard. And then it's out of that love for Jesus, out of that change that he makes in you, that you begin to, to make a difference. And that is the difference between moralism, a checklist in order to gain God's approval and morality, because morality and as Christians, we do believe in morals. Amen. So don't misunderstand me. You should not be going out and have to engaging in sex outside of God's good, wonderful gift of marriage outside of those bounds should not be doing that. There are plenty of other things we can talk about. And there is a way in which we are to operate as citizens of the kingdom. Amen. But it comes out of the outflow of what he's already done on the inside of it. So we don't want to confuse that. And so what is the kingdom ethic? What is the call, the call to come and die? What is the allegiance that God calls us to as citizens of his kingdom? First, an even greater allegiance that he calls us to to follow him. And so let's dive into the text here. What are they? Many people have said these are the Beatitudes, right? It's bad grammar. I just like to say these are what your attitude should be, right? As a Christ follower, he has changed and, and, and shifted and given you a new heart. And this is what the new heart looks like. Amen. So verse 1 says this. Seeing the crowds. Seeing the what? The crowds. He went up. On a mountain. Let's just pause there for a couple of things there. First, seeing the crowds. There was a large crowd. This is at the beginning of Jesus' teaching. And and, and as he's beginning, there are large crowds. If you look up in the verses before it, chapter 4 is actually more like an introduction. Chapter 4, verses 23 uh, through 25, it says this. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the what? Of the kingdom, right? This is kingdom ethics. Reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell them Christians are kingdom people. Christians are kingdom people. Tell your neighbor on the other side your your second choice. Christians are kingdom people, and I don't love you any less. Just because I chose you second. right? Christians are kingdom people. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the coming kingdom for which he is the ruler and the king. Okay, so this is just intro matter here. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people, verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains. How many of you got some pain that you need to bring to Jesus this morning? Amen. And those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Because how many of you know part of the the fall of humanity, the, the fact that the kingdom had, that, right? Let's go back to Genesis just for a second. Jesus, God the Father and the Trinity, the Spirit, gave us the kingdom of earth. Are you tracking with me? I just heard a Windows notification there. And um, I mean, if nobody else gives me an amen, at least the computer gives me an amen. It's like they think I'm preaching all right. And um, all right, stay focused though. We're talking about Genesis. And and Jesus, as he he put Adam and Eve there, he said, I give them, I give them dominion. I give them dominion. Dominion. Rule over. I give them, underneath my authority, I give Adam and Eve authority over the earth and over the animals. And to go and multiply and build cities and and governments and and families and, and go out and spread and do, and bear my image, and and make artwork, and music, and food, and, and do all these things. I give you dominion underneath his authority. We were made to be princes and princesses underneath the great king. Amen? That's what we were called to do, but guess what happened? We traded, we took off our crowns, as it were, and we gave up our authority for an apple or a fruit, whatever you want to call it, all right? We gave our authority away, and now we are living in the results of that. And so this world is broken and fallen, and he's saying, hey, here's how we restore the kingdom. And and the point I'm trying to make is that the the sin that has infected our world has infected bodies and pain and all that stuff, and Jesus comes to make us whole. Sometimes he won't make us whole in this life, but he will, amen, by his grace make us whole the next life and we'll get a brand new body free from aches and pains and we're looking forward to that many of us so pastor back to verse 25 there and great crowds so you see the connection there verse 25 in chapter 4 and great crowds followed him from galilee and the decapolis that was a region of 10 cities around that area great crowds followed him from galilee and the decapolis and from jerusalem and judea and from beyond the jordan now all these crowds. Can you picture it? Jesus sees multitudes, hundreds, thousands of people. I don't know. He sees these crowds. He says, I'm going to give them these instructions. I'm going to give them the kingdom principles for living. And he starts with the Beatitudes. And so it says he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down. See, you know, the old way of doing it was that the preacher sat down, and y'all stood up. I was at a Greek Orthodox church for the Greek festival the other day, he said, yeah, man, back in our days, Churches had no pews. That's a modern invention. That's you need to get rid of the pews. Everybody stands, you know, and um, and the preacher's supposed to sit. But I don't think y'all would like that. So I'm gonna keep things the way it is here, okay? Because I feel like we have a good relationship right now, and I wouldn't want to jeopardize that. And um, <laughs> and so when he sat down, his disciples, and so his disciples, the twelve, are coming up closer to him, and then he opened his mouth, verse 2, verse 2, right? And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And here's where we are. And, and we're going to take these Beatitudes. There's a lot of ways to slice them, um, but, but perhaps uh, one of the most logical ways is in fours because there's uh, eight total. And, and so some have commented that the first four, in a similar way uh, from, from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments that Moses gave us, relate to our relationship with God the first four do in the Beatitudes, and then the last four relate to our relationship with others. In fact, there are many parallels, even as you see in verse 1, that he went up on the mountain. There are many parallels between what Moses did with the children of Israel. He went up on the mountain, heard from God, and he gave them the teachers. You're going to see a lot of parallels here as we navigate the Sermon on the Mount between Jesus, who is the greater Moses, amen, and the Exodus there. And so it says this, blessed are the poor in Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of what? Of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And look at that word blessed there. Maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not, but the, the word in Greek is mercurius, and it means this joy filled, even happiness. And, and so some people would translate it happy are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed, they have God's blessing upon them. Happy are they are filled with joy. This is true happiness. Those who are poor in what? But what does poor in spirit mean? That's kind of strange, isn't it? That's not language like, hey, are you poor in spirit today? Like, oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I got a little bit in my bank account, you know. It's like poor, meaning I'm lacking, and I'm lacking where? In the spirit. I'm lacking in the spiritual realm. This is an attitude of, hey folks, I need God, and without God, I am a hot Mess. I humbly depend on God rather than myself. One commentator has said this it's an attitude of destitute, bankrupt, without God. And he said it's the opposite of self sufficiency, which is very popular in our day, which is taught to us by the culture. Amen. It is the opposite of self sufficiency. It speaks to the deep humility of recognizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from. God. It describes those who are acutely aware or conscious of their own lostness and hopelessness apart from the divine grace of Jesus Christ. That's what being poor in the spirit is. It means, hey, look, I know I don't have it all together. I'm, it's the opposite of the Pharisee attitude who put, puts on, I have it all together and I'm better than you and you and you. I am in need of God and without God, My life will be a wreck. It is humble dependence upon God. And so, let me ask you. Let's ask one another. In your relationships, do you have a humble dependence on God? God, I need you in my relationships and all the relationships. God, I really need you in this situation because otherwise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it wrong. In your finances, do you have a humble dependence upon God? And say, God, I really need you in my finances. God. Not just God, I need you to pay a bill for me, right? Amen. But God, I need you as I get a paycheck. God, how do I organize and spend the money that you have entrusted me with? God, I'm humbly depending upon you for every paycheck. Thank you for giving me a job in your work, at your school. Do you have humble dependence upon God? God, I need you in my schoolwork, and and as I talk to people with your children and your grandchildren, do you have humble dependence upon God? Let me give you two things. Surprisingly, I will be very anti-Baptist today because there are not three points that all began with the letter P or something like that today. There's just no points, okay? There's nothing. But if you want to write down two things, this is as Baptist as you get uh, today, uh, is, is that this won't even be on the screen, okay? But here are two practical things I just thought about uh, as I was preparing this week that, that will help you have a poor in spirit attitude. You ready for those? Depend on God's wisdom, not my own. Depend on God's wisdom, not my own, do you depend on God's wisdom, not your own? you know the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right. How many of you have have been in a situation where you thought this is a great idea, right? You knew and you knew, and you're a heart of hearts. this is a great idea. this is going to work. I'm going to be celebrated by others. This is going to work. And then you navigate that and it tanks. It crashes and burns. Right. You ever thought that before? I have. I remember one time I found a BB gun. And um, and I thought, let me see if this BB gun works. Let me see. It's been locked away for a long time. Let me let me see if it works. And it seemed like a really good idea to take it out in the backyard and try it. it. Seemed like that was a much better idea than trying it inside the house. What damage could I do outside? Well, in all of my great wisdom and discernment that I had on my own, because you see, a, there's a way that seems right. I thought I'll try this thing outside, and I did not notice the glass patio table that was also out there. And so I pumped that sucker up a couple of times, see if it would work, and and just gave it a shot, and that, pow, shattered all the glass of that table. And it was quite an experience to pick up little. Billions of miniature pieces of glass from a yard. And uh, for the first time, I learned that you could vacuum a yard. And um, and so, um, man, I just knew it was right. Have you ever been in a situation and you're just like, I knew I just feel in my gut. I just I got a gut feeling about this. How many of you know, though, your gut can just be filled with pizza sometimes and does not and is not a reliable source of information. Right. I got a feeling tonight's going to be a good night. Listen, our feelings change left and right. It just ends up being a really dumb idea. Some of you think, I'm going to get the perfect job. And you get this picture of this perfect job. And I know it's going to be great. And then it turns out wrong. Some of you think, oh, this is the person I need to date. And you just know, I, got this, I just got to date them. And you just get this burning to date this person. And it is a dumb idea because you didn't ask for God's wisdom. Some of you are, are, are thinking, I'm going to marry this person. I should marry this person. And you have not listened to God's wisdom. And it ends up being a dumb idea. Some of you have have, have, have said, I'm going to invest in this. And I've been watching this. I've been paying attention to this. And I'm going to invest in this. And it ends up being a really dumb idea. Because we did not depend on God's wisdom, but on our own wisdom. Amen. People are often saying, you know, if well, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Because our feelings have been infected by sin and they don't know what they're doing. There are plenty of things that feel so right and are abundantly wrong. And So it's not about what I think. It's not about what my gut feels. It's not about, listen to me now, what my friends think. Young people, it's not about what my friends think. Young people, can I get an amen from the parents and the older saints? It's not about what my friends think. It's about what God says. It's not about what I think. It's about what God says. And so am I depending on His wisdom? Now somebody says, how do you know if you're depending on God's wisdom or your own wisdom? Well, two things, right? Are you praying consistently and constantly about this? And secondly, and most importantly, does it line up with the word of God? Some folks are like, I've been praying about this new car I'm getting past. I'm praying. I know this is the new car for me. But they have failed to read the word of God and understand how they need to be operated in their finances. And they are putting themselves up, up in debt and up above their eyeballs. And they can't afford these bills and those bills. They, they, they do not steward their money and and make their offering and their are to God and they're saying, but I know, Pastor, I've been praying. This is the car for me. I just know it. And I know when I drive, I just, just the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. And then and then, man, I, I prayed for for a an employee with a green shirt on, and I just knew when that guy walked out in a green shirt, that was confirmation from the Lord. And then I and then I just knew that that man, I knew this guy was a Christian because I saw a little cross on his desk when I went into the finance office to 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 get my car financed and I just knew that was a sign from the Lord that he was blessing my irresponsibility Do you know what I'm saying and so praying consistently but also lining up with God's word those are two ways to really and then the third would be gathering a Council of of other wise people, not an echo chamber of other people. Like, oh yeah, you definitely need a new, brand new one. Yeah, absolutely, get that because I would like to ride in that, right? You know. And so we need to get God's wisdom, not our own. Depend on God's wisdom, Amen. Talking to God before you go into a class, before you go into a meeting, God, I need your help as I go into this meeting. Before I go to school, I need your help, God. I need your wisdom before I go into work, before I. Talk to my spouse before I talk to my children. God, I need your wisdom. Then secondly is, so the first is depend on God's wisdom, not your own wisdom. And then secondly would be depend on God's strength, not your own strength. Depend on God's strength, not your own strength. Right? So it's it's not that I just, I'm not doing the right things, but I'm doing it with the right power as well. How many of you noticed, you get tired sometimes, right? Some of y'all are looking kind of tired right now. Most of y'all are doing pretty good. Right? We're exhausted sometimes. You know why you get tired? Because your strength is limited by God's good design. Your strength is limited, but God's strength is unlimited. Your strength is finite, meaning it has an end. But God's strength is infinite, meaning it has no end. Your strength is exhaustible. God's strength is inexhaustible. And so we depend on God's strength to get me through my days, through my pain, through my situations. I depend upon God's strength and He gets the glory. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. God, I need your strength. I need your wisdom because I can't do life without you. God, I really, really need you. You're not the spare tire. You are the driver. And I'm not getting in the car unless you're driving and leading it. Let me give you a verse here to maybe memorize or write down. Psalm 28 says this, love the psalm. It says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Then it goes on to say, in Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts or celebrates. And with my song I give what? Mm-hmm. Let me encourage you to write this on a card. Put it into your bed, put it on your mirror, put it somewhere in your car, put it in a notebook, make it your lock screen, whatever. And when you are tired and can't get up in the morning and you have no strength and you're laying in bed exhausted, you get to say, The Lord is my strength and my shield. Amen? And then you sit up on the side of the bed thinking, I don't know if I can do this. You repeat this verse, right? The Lord is my strength and my shield. And when you're tempted to roll back over and get back in the bed, The Lord is my strength and my shield, right? And then when you get ready to go to work in the morning or go to school and you had to have eight cups of coffee and you know there's going to be conflict at the bus stop or conflict in your classroom or conflict with a coworker or in the parking lot or wherever, you say the Lord is my strength and my shield, right? When you get home from a long day, And you're tired, and you don't want to have to deal with other people's stuff. And you're about to walk into your house and deal with your spouse or deal with your neighbor, and they're barking dog again, right? The Lord is my strength and my shield. And then you're trying to make dinner, and then you get a phone call from a relative, and it's bad news. You get to say, the Lord is my strength and my shield. And when you lay down at night, right? and you've totally run out of energy and you're laying on your bed and you're still thinking through all the stuff you're supposed to do, you should have done and you failed and all this sort of stuff, you get to calmly say, the Lord is my strength and my shield. God, you're going to give me strength to do it and it'll get done another day. I'm going to rest in you, right? Isn't that a beautiful verse? Maybe for some of us here, Psalm 73 is maybe the verse for you to repeat to yourself and memorize Psalm 73, 26. My health, my health may fail, my health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever, and oh, my body is struggling, and it's not moving the way it's supposed to move. My eyesight's failing, and my ears can't hear. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. The old missionary Hudson Taylor, he was one of the pioneer missionaries. He went to China, by the way, and that's why he Where's the Chinese garb? As he reached those people for Christ, he wanted to connect with them. One of the first missionaries to ever do that. Everybody else thought he was crazy because they were operating according to the United Kingdom standards. Amen. And they're like, you must dress proper. And he was like, I'm not dressing proper when I go to the Chinese. I got to dress in their proper. And so, anyhow, Hudson Taylor, though, said this. He was a great missionary pioneer missionary. He said this: As his health started to fail in his latter years and he had struggled in China for so many years, he says, I am so weak, I can hardly write. I cannot read my Bible. I cannot even pray. I can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. Is that poor in spirit or what? It's a great man of God, missionary who gave his life on the mission. field. He said, I can't even pray. I can hardly write. I can't even read my Bible. All I can do is just lay in my good, good father's arms and just trust him to take care of me. That is poor in spirit. And to be honest with you, I've spent so much time on this one because this really opens up the key to the rest of them, right? When when you live surrendered to Christ and you have this attitude, God, I need you, man, he begins to fill in all those things. So let's go to the next one, verse 4. So verse 3 is blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4 says this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be what? Comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, we celebrate power and, and celebration of those who are happy and excited. And the kingdom celebrates those who have mourned, for they shall be comforted. Maybe they're mourning over injustice that has happened to them or their family. Maybe they're mourning over death or sorrow. Maybe they're mourning, like many people on this weekend, on Memorial Day weekend, they're, they're mourning the memory of a, of a A soldier or a sailor or somebody who has given their life, a family member who has given their life as we think about many young families and and praise God for some good things on TV that highlight these families and they show the husbands and the children or the wives and the children of these families who we have lost on the battlefields. And for those women and for those children who are mourning the loss of their father or their mother or their uncle for the parents mourning the loss of a son, God says, Blessed are you, because you will Be comforted. Amen. Some would say maybe this is even blessed are those who mourn over their own sin, who are broken hearted over their own sin. And certainly that would be the case here. But I want you to notice again a parallel from Moses and Exodus. Because God's heart is after those who are broken hearted. God's heart is after those who are mourning. And what were the the people, his children, doing as slaves in Egypt? They were morning. You know what God said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7? It says this Exodus 3 7, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have heard them, and I'm not forsaking them, and I am blessing them. And then Jesus, uh, later on in the Gospels, he quotes this passage from Isaiah, but in in the passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 63, Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound on them. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort, to comfort all who what? To comfort all those who mourn. And so... Blessed or happy or filled with joy are those who mourn because they know they will experience God's comfort in a way that cannot be explained, amen? Then verse 5, blessed are the, the meek, the meek. Maybe that's how you think of meek. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. What is meekness? It has been best described, and maybe you're familiar with this, as strength. It's not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Touch your neighbor, tell them meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. You guys are looking. You're trying to be meek. I know what it is. That's what it was. They were just trying to be meek. I see. I see. I got it. Okay? Meekness is not weakness. It has been described as strength under control. Right? So when somebody is. Being rude to you and you could just tear them apart verbally, right? You could just slice them and dice them because you got a mind that's witty like that. And I could talk about you and how terribly you do your job and how ugly you look. And I could just just cut you up. I'm going to reserve that even though you've been rude to me and you can't even count change back. Right. You know, but I'm going to I have the strength to do that, but I'm not going to because it'll be dishonoring to the Lord. I'll give you a, it means there's no pretension. It means believers have no opportunity or no reason to walk around with swagger, like we got it all together. Why? Because you're saved. And who saved you? Not yourself. It was Jesus who called you out of the grave, who lifted you up, who redeemed you, who rescued you and pulled you out of the muck and mire and set you upon the rock. It was Jesus Christ and him alone. So we got no opportunity for swagger like we are great. We have opportunity to be meek. I'll tell you the best illustration I ever saw of this. It was my good old friend, John Collins. We went to high school together. He was about 6'8", basketball player, big long arms, could jump out the gym. And, um, and I was the opposite of meekness. I was the epitome of pride and arrogance. And he just embodied meekness. And he was a quiet, he was like a gentle giant. And, um, and when I did stuff, we played basketball together, when I did stuff on the basketball, I mean, you just knew I was in the gym, because I was talking trash, I was yelling, I was talking to the refs, I was talking to the fans. Like I told y'all before, I kind of modeled my life after Dennis Rodman, who was pretty much psychotic, and um, and, and that was what I was trying to be, And uh, but John Collins, man, he was just quiet, and so, you know, 6'8", he, he had the record, he was set records in our conference for shot blocks, he was throwing shots, you know, and if I blocked the shot and I was I, I was a smaller guy on my team, by the way, and um, and I couldn't jump all that high. But if I ever blocked the shot, I would scribble like ah, like but, but tumble like not in my house, you know. I just give him that death stare like. Let's do that again, you know. But John Collins, though, he was way better. At, he had way more strength at blocking shots, and so he would block somebody's shot and send that thing across the gym, and then he would just walk, run back, and he would just kind of look at his feet, just meek. You know, just kind of doing this. He had the strength to do it, but he wasn't out there bragging about it. He wasn't there like, ah! No, he just looked at his feet and just kind of walked on down. He did what he was supposed to do. He had a meek attitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Righteousness, and again, this is very much related to being poor in spirit. Those who are hungry, and the Bible says, Have you tasted and seen the Lord is good? And you want more and more of God. We were talking earlier again as we were praying uh, this morning before the service. As the psalmist says, Man, my soul pants like a deer pants <laughs> for water, so my soul thirsts for you, God. Man, are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty? for the righteousness of God and of Jesus Christ. Is that your heart condition, believer? If not, we need to ask ourselves, what's going on? And so here's a couple encouragements and a challenge, right? Number one, if you're like, man, I'm I'm trying to read the Bible, I'm trying to pray, but I just feel like I'm in the season of a desert. I just feel like I'm in the wilderness. It feels like every time I pray, boom, my prayers hit the ceiling and just come back down. It feels like every time I read God's Word, I just... I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. And I, I just feel like God's not speaking. I just feel like God's not there. Look back at the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? They shall be satisfied. And so my encouragement to you, if you're in that desert, dry season, and you're still pursuing God and you're still seeking Him even though it's a wrestle, hold on because you will be what? Satisfied. God is just waiting for a downpour later. Amen? And He is going to pour out a blessing on you. Secondly, though, is this. If you're hungry and thirsty, if you're hungry and thirsty, eat. Eat from the Word. Amen? Feast upon the Word. Are you, believer, opening up the book and getting in it? Right? Food just does not appear on our table. I know some children think that just happens, right? But there's a person called mom most of the time or dad or grandma or grandpa and they labor and they make a meal and they prepare it for it. it just doesn't appear. You have to go get that. And God has labored through people and given us His Word. And you got to take it and what? Eat it. Right? Open up the book. If we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if we are believers, we have to be people who are in the Word and hungering and thirsting for that. Why? Because we need His wisdom. We need His strength. And that's where we get it. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They desire God's righteousness. Some people say, I don't know. I don't understand, Pastor, where to read. Read the book of John. Pastor, I don't even understand the book of John. Read the Psalms. Start with the daily bread. There are brand new ones for June out there in the four out here. Pick them up. They're on the tables. Get the daily bread. Get into God's Word. Amen? Get a translation that works for you. Just eat. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And now we move into the second quad, if you will, and how we relate to others. Verse 7 says this, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. Mercy is extending compassion and kindness to others, right? Exhibiting compassion upon those who need help, upon the poor, upon those who have had injustice, and oppression upon, them, upon those who are tangled in sin, right? And when I see fellow believers in sin, I don't judge them and say, oh, how could they do that? Oh, how could they wear that? Oh, my gosh, did you see those people? I can't believe somebody would ever do that. Instead, I look upon them with mercy and say, hey, I'm pouring spirit too. Man, shoot, I probably can end up doing something like that if it wasn't for God and what he's done for me, right? You know the old saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. So I look upon people, not with judgment, but with mercy. I'm showing them mercy. So that's the first one. And then it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? They shall see God pure in heart. Some translations say, blessed are the clean in heart. The Bible commentator Barclay notes that the Greek has several ideas when it comes to this word pure or clean. It was used for clothing, which was washed clean and then was ready to be used. It was used for corn, which has been winnowed and sifted and cleansed off of all the chaff and the husk. It was also used for an army that has been purged of all the cowardly soldiers and unwilling soldiers. It was also used of milk or wine or a metal which has not been diluted or amalgamated with another substance, but it's pure. And so you could translate this, blessed are those whose motives are pure. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Whose motives are always entirely unmixed, unmixed or pure. How many of us, though, struggle with pure motives, right? I mean, why do we say things to people? Because we want them to think rightly of us, or do we actually care about them, right? Why do you compliment people? Because you want to compliment in return? Right? Have you ever examined your motives? Why do you do the dishes? Because you hope? What? You'll get something in return? Your parents will say, oh, great job. You know, or, or did you do it from a pure heart? Why do you give? Why do you give? Why do you give to somebody on the street? Do you do it from a pure heart? Why do you even go to church? Are you fulfilling a respectable habit? Why do you serve? For selfless motives? or for self display. Why do you sacrifice even for another so that others will think you are heroic? Or are you serving out of pure motives just because Christ has served you, you can't help but serve others? What are my motives? Why do we even read the Bible and pray? So that we'll feel good and have a pleasant feeling of superiority? Oh, I'm I'm and I know I heard pastor talking about read from the word of God. I read all those other people in my Community group or Sunday school class, I know they don't read. I sit next to people. They don't even have their Bible open in the pew while he's preaching. I brought my Bible. They had to use a pew Bible. Right? What are our motives? Look at my Bible. It's bigger than yours. hmm I like big Bibles and I cannot lie, said one song. That's a real song. It's a real song. You can go watch it. It was written by a pastor. All right? So blessed are the pure in heart who operate out of unmixed motives. That's the ethic of the kingdom. And then verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who work for peace, for they shall be called the sons of God. And man, I tell you what, I cannot be honest with you. This is one that in our day and our current cultural time frame really needs the most. Right. Like, boy, peacemaking is something that we should be so different from the world with. Amen? Why? Because we have experienced peace with our Creator. We have experienced peace with God, right? And then we're able to, from the peace we've experienced, offer it to others. But can I just help us a little bit? We live in perhaps the most polarizing time I think our nation has ever had. Let's talk partisan politics for a few minutes, right? And just step on everybody's toes because, man, this is like everybody's lining up with guns and we're cannibalizing each other. Oh, you believe this, you are this. Oh, you stand with them? you're that. And it's like nobody wants to seek to understand somebody else. Nobody wants to believe someone on the other side of the aisle is made in the image of God and and maybe I should approach them as a human being instead of an enemy, right? I know it's hard for some of you to believe this, but there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Fully surrendered people who are Democrats. I know. I know. Okay? And 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 for some of you others, for some of you others, there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, fully surrendered people, shocking, who are Republicans. There are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, fully surrendered independents. Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, fully surrendered tea party. Whatever. We can... I'm not saying people are going to agree, but we should not be cannibalizing one another. And some of us spend way more time reading blogs and watching the news than we do in the word of God. And it builds up in us this anger and this frustration with this other people who are not human beings because we use other derogatory terms for them. we don't treat them as humans. We are made in the image of God, and we cannot, we must not. It brings slander and reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. Look, be passionate. And there are things upon which men and women who believe the Bible need to stand up for in our nation. But we don't do it to cannibalize others or to prove we are right and others are wrong. We do it because God is glorified, and we're displaying people to His truth, to His redeeming of society. Amen? So you won't agree. But come to them and say, hey, look, can you help me understand? I had a conversation with a gentleman. This was uh, pre-presidential pre, uh, election, and we got talking about this. And I just said, man, let's just open this up. You know, and I said, hey, who are you going to vote for? I know some people are like, don't, don't talk about that. So, but I love this guy. And I want to talk to him. And he said, he said, Pastor, and, and, and I wanted to understand this perspective. I said, why are you voting for this person? He said, what is so-and-so going to do for a black man like me? And I said, well, enlighten me about that. And he began to tell me his perspective. And I said, well, what about these issues and these issues? And we had this dialogue. And he said, you know, I hadn't thought about those issues. And so we came together. And we didn't agree on everything but because he was a fellow believer. Man, I honored him and we still stood our ground, but we could agree to disagree. Amen. And we could still say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. You're not I'm not going to label you. I'm not going to post blogs or Facebook posts about how evil and wicked these people are. I'm going to point people to Jesus Christ. Amen. And you know what will happen when we do this? You know what happens when you're a peacemaker in your office? You know what happens when you're a peacemaker in your neighborhood and you don't engage around the water cooler or in the street or at a birthday party? I was at a birthday party yesterday. People started getting into it. I was like, man, how can I just be a peacemaker right in the middle of this? Because they were starting to line up and get people on sides and start firing at the other side about how evil and wicked they are. And it just never goes. Look at the verse. Look at the verse. Look at the verse. Ready? What happens when we are peacemakers? We shall be called the sons of God. What a great apologetic it is not to not to get involved and, and, and start rallying against somebody else, but to be a peacemaker and to say, hey, 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 I feel this way, too. And I feel strongly about this, but we're not going to treat one another this way. And people say, why do you act like that? And You get to tell them the gospel. You get to tell them the truth. It is people will see we are sons and daughters of God. They'll see the evidence. They're not going to see the evidence from our arguing. And listen, don't hear me say don't be passionate about politics because we need men and women of God engaged. And I hope we'll raise up a generation who will be involved in politics and will take a stand firmly upon the Bible. We need that. But some of us are more passionate about politics and we get more geeked out about politics than we do about Jesus. And it confuses people. And so we make Jesus front and center man blessed are the peacemakers and we'll wrap up with this last one here and some of you are like praise god I thought y'all were hungry and thirsty for righteousness I was just trying to give y'all a downpour slackers say pastor you need to look at the, me- the meekness and uh and the poor in spirit that's what you need pastor blessed are verse 10 verse 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you simply put is this we should not be surprised when we are persecuted as believers And I know there is a movement for for Christians to to fit in with the world and and to slide in there and to never disagree and to never engage in arguments as much as we're going to be peacemakers. But peacemakers stand their ground when it comes time to stand our ground. But we're still centering on making peace. But that doesn't mean we get rolled over and we just uh, never say anything that is wrong. We will be persecuted. But what is the reason we're persecuted? Is it because our attitude is off-putting? Is it because we're a jerk or a jerkette? What is the reason we're persecuted? Look back at the text, right? What does it say? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You're being persecuted because you're living in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God for righteousness. You're not being persecuted because you were so ornery or angry or selfish or prideful or arrogant. That's not why you're being persecuted. Some of us have not They're like, man, Pastor, everybody's persecuting me at work, man. Because I'm I'm like, because you're a jerk. If you acted that way there, I would persecute you. Like, that's just real. You can't speak to people like that. You can't treat people that way. And continue on the verse of me who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Next verse, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Why? Falsely. On whose account? On my account, we're being persecuted because we're more like Jesus not because we're right all the time or not because we're so self-righteous. We're persecuted for Jesus' sake. And so as we wrap this up, I want you to notice a change in the word there in verse 11 as you're looking at your text because this is really where it pulls us into. Notice all the other, it says, blessed are those, it's general words. Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the me. Blessed are those. But verse 11, notice how it changes. As Jesus comes to the climax in verse 11, he says, Blessed are you. And he's making a personal assertion. Blessed are you. Are you, listen to me now, part of the kingdom of heaven or not? That's the question before us. Because, again, this list doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. What gets someone into the kingdom of heaven? What makes them a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, it really starts with that poor in spirit as they have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. They said, I am a sinner in need of a great savior. I have given up my rights. I've given up my wisdom and I've traded in for the rights and the wisdom of God. I've traded in for a cross. And that's man, I, I just want my life to be surrendered fully. to Jesus. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. You know, in America, we have a declaration of independence. A declaration of it. We are independent from Britain. We're getting away from those guys and we are standing. But as believers we have the opposite. We have a declaration of dependence upon Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. I am dependent upon the Savior. Do you know him today? Let's pray and then we'll have a time to respond. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody bothering their neighbor as we just take some moments to sit before the Lord. And and really the crucial question is, is not always, are you meek and are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Although that is important. The first question is, am I surrendered to Jesus? Am I poor in spirit? Have I admitted that I have a deep, deep, undeniable need for Jesus? And for you, if you're here for the first time and, and you have never engaged in a relationship with Jesus, That's who I want to speak to right now. Wherever you are in your seat, if you desire to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to meet the standard. In fact, the Bible says we've all, every person in this room has flunked the standard. Except for Jesus. The Bible says that he will trade his robes of righteousness for your filthy rags. You would just need, that's the condition of your heart, God would hear your prayer. Maybe you would pray something like this in your heart and you would desire that. You would repeat this after me. It's not magic words, but it's just the condition of your heart. You would say something like this in your heart. "Dear Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I need you more than anything. I admit that in my own strength, I cannot do it. So Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose again on the third day. And I give my life to you right now. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving. In Jesus' name.